0: John. Good morning to everybody. Great to be together today, it really is. And if you are traveling and you're stopping along the way and being with us to worship God and study his word, we're thankful for you in an extra special way. You're a blessing to us just by being here and we're, we pray that uh, it's a blessing for you as well as you're with us studying God's word and worshiping him at this time and place. Be sure to keep all of our regular members who are traveling themselves in your prayers for God's safety and blessing on their trips and bringing them back to us. And speaking of a trip, this is the last Sunday that Eric is going to be with us until he leaves Saturday. Is that correct? He deploys Saturday. His family is going to stay here in Omaha. We're so thankful for having them as a part of the congregation for these last couple of years or so. And, and uh, we want to be keeping Eric in our prayers for safety. And also his family while they're here for safety and everything be taken care of. Eric, we're, we're here for you and we're here for your wife and your little ones as well. And if there's anything any of you need, please do not hesitate to holler. Okay. I want us to talk about Jesus. But I want us to think about Jesus from a couple of perspectives. Have you ever thought, I'd sure like to know what Jesus looked like in physical form on this earth? Now we know that that ultimately he's spirit, and so that's different. Whatever the spirit body is, we we, we don't know. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, getting toward the end of the chapter, that when we... Meet our Lord, and when we enter into heaven as the redeemed and the saved, we'll be given a new body. Even those who are still alive, when the Lord comes again on that final day of judgment, says we're going to be changed. And this temporal will, will put on immortality. So we don't know what that spiritual body will look like, and we don't know what Jesus in his spiritual essence looks like in heaven, but we look forward to seeing him. But when he was here upon this earth, living in physical form, wouldn't you like to know what he looked like? Wouldn't that be something? I suppose that people have probably wondered what Jesus looked like from the time of his crucifixion on. Maybe even before that, when people would hear about him in other places and and they would wish they could see him. But maybe never got the chance before he died on that cross and then ascended back into heaven. Well, we don't have any real visual evidence of what he looked like. Now, we do hear some things, just briefest details about his growing up years. But they don't really tell us what he looked like in any kind of detail at all. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, the child grew, speaking of Jesus became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and grace of God was upon him. And then we look a little further in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Well, just the briefest details of information, but really don't tell us anything basically about his physical appearance. But apparently it does indicate that he got along well with people around him as he was growing up. Now that would change when he began pursuing his ministry upon this earth and were teaching principles of Christianity to come that a whole lot of Jewish leadership and Jewish people in general did not like, did not agree with. He was not the savior, the Messiah that they were looking for and longing for. They wanted a military leader to come in and kick the Roman army out and restore the nation of Israel to its former physical glory. And Jesus came as the spiritual savior, the spiritual Messiah. And so a whole lot of them didn't like him. And ultimately, the leadership of the Jewish people had, or they instigated his crucifixion on the cross. But the scriptures seem to indicate these two brief accounts that as he was growing up, he was in favor with God and men. Isaiah prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows, And not particularly striking in physical appearance, but really nothing more specific than that as far as physical description is concerned. Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, indicating he's not really particularly striking in physical appearance. And when we see him, there is no no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our face from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And that last part is probably something of a prophecy of the response of the Jewish people as a whole to Jesus when he would come as the Savior. So Isaiah says, you know, not particularly handsome, striking, compelling in appearance, inwardly a man of sorrows, but no real physical description. There have never been found any known works of art that really portrayed his true physical appearance. And perhaps that was because God did not want images of Jesus to become icons of worship over Jesus well so we can imagine we can dream but we just don't know what he looked like as he lived as a man upon this earth for those 33 approximately 33 years but the scriptures do give us something of a portrait of Jesus in describing his character as a human upon this earth, and at the same time as the savior of mankind, God the son. So it gives us a portrait of him, what he looked like in character. He identified himself as a religious teacher, and the words rabbi and master can be understood in that kind of identity and description. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 8, and also verse 10, but You do not be called rabbi, Jesus said, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And so the two words basically interchangeable, rabbi and teacher, or master and teacher. And you all are brethren. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. So he's talking about himself as fulfilling those roles of identity. He called himself teacher and master. Or master and lord, a term of high reverence, a term of high reverence, dignity, probably in this particular case, including divinity. In John chapter 3, or 13, beginning with verse 13, he again, speaking to the apostles, said, You call me teacher and lord, and you do well, for so I am. So he took those titles of identity upon himself, they were proper in referring to him. He goes on and says, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And we're going to come back to that particular action in a few moments. Lord was commonly used in reference to him as descriptive term. Remember when he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21, he says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. In Luke chapter six and verse 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? And so there's that particular title. And again, respect, recognition, but also probably undoubtedly, in fact, referring to his divinity as the Lord come to this earth for mankind. At his birth, an angel identified him as savior and Christ the Lord. We read in Luke chapter two and verse 11, for there is born to you this day, the angel said, announcing Jesus's birth to the, to the uh, uh, shepherds in the field. In the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord and Christ meeting Messiah. The Samaritan men, when they were told by the woman who Jesus spoke to at the well in John chapter four, that come and hear this man whom I have heard, surely this is the savior, this is the Lord. So they said to the woman after they came out and the appearance seems to be from the scripture, a multitude of these men from the city came out to hear him, to meet him, to find out just what this woman was talking about. And so they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. So he is, again, recognized as teacher, master, rabbi, lord. All of these are descriptive titles or statements of identity that are appropriate to him. And we, so we get something again of a building in our, in our mind of, of an image of Jesus by character. We go a little bit further and we can think about he repeatedly demonstrated the power of God within himself. Repeatedly. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 31, we're not going to take the time to read through all of that, but you can read that text and you can see how he performed signs and wonders and miracles Identifying himself truly as being from God, from heaven, and the authority of everything that he was saying that he is and all the teaching that he was communicating to the people who had come to listen to him teach, God's authority was behind all of that, demonstrated through the miracles and the wonders and the signs that he performed. In Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 12, we read, it happened when he was in a certain city that behold a man who was full of leprosy. And, and notice this text, and text. And I think we tend to read over some of these texts rather quickly and surface level in fashion, and we may not really think about the depth of what's being said. But this man, who was full of leprosy, saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, understand, the man did not come to him and say, would you please make me clean, he said, and there's a degree of faith that is, that is communicated in the way he said what he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He already had faith that Jesus could heal him of his leprosy. And Jesus responded, he put his hand out and touched him saying, I am willing, be clean, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one but go and show yourself to the to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded but however the report went around concerning him all the more the word got out in other words and great multitudes came together to hear And that was the most important thing that Jesus came for, to communicate the gospel message of salvation from God through him and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Tremendous faith is communicated in that short text of scripture. Now, think about what Jesus did. He described his mission as that of Savior. He did not hold back from identifying himself fully and directly as pertaining to the mission that he came to this earth from the throne room in heaven to complete. In John chapter three and verse 16, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I came as the savior, in other words. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he said, the son of man speaking of himself The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In John chapter 8 and verse 24, he said, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, the Savior, the Son of God, you will die in your sins. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, in the night of his betrayal, he told the apostles, I am the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. He identified himself repeatedly as the Savior, as the Son of God, God the Son, as the Messiah prophesied in Old Testament scriptures over and over and over again. And he is variously identified in several different ways by several several different characteristics. High priest. In Hebrews chapter four, beginning with verse 14, the Hebrews writer wrote, seeing then that we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so sometimes we might think from a, more physical or maybe professional relationship, we might think of maybe the owner of the company where we work, or the supervisor, or the boss, or we may think of some big businessman who is extremely wealthy and he is being interviewed and he's giving some advice. We might think, what does that person know? They can't relate to me. I'm not on their level. They're not on my level. How can they possibly tell me something? that I can really take in and it's going to it's going to really be able to I'm really going to be able to apply it to my life. Well, maybe some of that line of reasoning is faulty, but when it comes to Jesus as our savior, he can relate to us totally because as the Hebrews writer said, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He lived as a common human being from a physical perspective, with all of the physical characteristics that all human beings have, and yet at the same time fully divine. But he was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted, yet without sin. So we can go to him in prayer. We can come to him and surrender as we're baptized for the remission of our sins into him, understanding he knows exactly where we're at. And he knows exactly what we're going through because he went through similar himself. He really can be our high priest and we can identify with him so fully. But he's also identified as our advocate. And we would say, okay, advocate, uh, the closest thing we could probably come to that particular understanding or, or identity in our culture today we might say he's going to be our, our mediator or our attorney. He's going to speak for us. He's going to speak in our behalf. And so in 1 John chapter 2, and verse one, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we can think about Jesus being there before God's throne, pleading our case before him for us, because he is our advocate. Also, he is identified as the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, you probably haven't used that very much <laughs> over the last week or so. Very technical term, it, it, it means basically our substitute or our cover for us. There's no way that we can be counted righteous except through Jesus. And when it, comes to, when it comes to our being able to look to God and expect his forgiveness and his salvation for us, that's only through Jesus. When he died on that cross, he died as the substitute for us being on that cross. He died to cover for our sins. And so we see number of verses of scripture. We're just gonna look at the one in first John chapter two and verse two, where John the apostle wrote, and he himself speaking of Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He died to pay the price for the guilt of the sins of all mankind for all time. All who lived upon this earth before he went to that cross. All who were alive during that time when he died on that cross. And all who have ever lived and will continue to live until he comes again on that final day of judgment. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now also we see him as our example of holiness and humility and self-control of righteousness. All of that. All of those were examples in character that we learn from him. First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Look again at the depth of what Peter writes here. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, no sin. There's our example of righteousness, of holiness. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So he did not pay back in kind when those Roman soldiers slapped him and treated him despitefully and disrespectfully preparing him for that cross he took it because that was what he came to this earth ultimately to do when Pilate said I could I I could I could release you why aren't you answering my questions he responded in brief you would have no power or no authority except it were given to you in heaven and I could call for legions of angels my father would send them And deliver me, but that's not what I'm here for. So he did not return, he did not return in kind what was done to him in despiteful ways, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And then Peter goes on and adds, by whose stripes you were healed? He suffered that beating, that scourging. He suffered those nails being driven through his hands and his feet. He suffered that spear being driven in his side. He suffered the mocking and the humiliation that was attempted to be bestowed upon him by those enemies of his below the foot of his cross. He did all of that for us. He did it willingly and he did it lovingly. All of that for us. And he also is our example of obedience. The Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9, speaking of Jesus, though he were a son, the son of God, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect or perfected, he became the author or source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is our example of obedience. One after another, all of these examples of the character of Jesus paint a portrait of what he looked like in character, in character. Now, perhaps as descriptive as any of these characteristics is when he described and identified himself as a servant. In spite of being God, the son, the savior, the Messiah come in the flesh. In spite of performing all of those miracles and signs and wonders, he said, I'm a servant. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 27, he told the apostles, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Think about that. He came to be a servant, he said. And he tried to teach the apostles. And, of course, through the scriptures, he tries to teach us, be a servant. Be a servant. Don't be haughty in your mindset. Don't be arrogant. Don't try to elevate yourself in the eyes of others, bringing glory to yourself. Be a servant. Be a servant, and God will take care of all the rest. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 10, Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now he tells them this right after he has gone ahead and identified himself as teacher and and Lord, as master, as rabbi. But then he says, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In John chapter 13, beginning with verse 12, as Lord, as the Savior, as God the Son, he washed the feet of all of the apostles. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? I suspect there was a moment of silence after he asked them that that question. They were probably somewhat shocked that he did what he did in washing their feet. Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you most assuredly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him if you know these things blessed are you if you do them and so he came as a servant and he served most notably I think we should say or maybe most profoundly as he allowed himself to be sacrificed on that cross to serve as our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 7, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant. Bond servant. Giving the the identity, the the understanding of of a slave, basically. And being found as a, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility. The Hebrews writer wrote, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 26... Speaking of Jesus as our Savior, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice, by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once and after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Offered as that perfect one time for all time sacrifice. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And then as he was crucified on that cross, as he was buried in that tomb, as God raised him from that dead, physical death. As he appeared for 40 days upon the earth, demonstrating he was risen then he ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 110 and verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Acts chapter two, verses 32 and 33, it's applied to Jesus by Peter in that gospel sermon on Pentecost. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, all of the apostles. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, For Jesus is now sitting on God's right hand as our advocate and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear Hebrews 10 and verse 12 but this man after he had offered one after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God he took his place and there he waits Till that right time when he'll come again. Now all of these points of character portray something of an image for us of Jesus in character. In character. But on this earth, there is only one, only one full color portrait of Jesus. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought you said there is no work of art that's known to have really been painted or drawn to depict the true physical appearance of Jesus. That's correct. I don't think there ever was one. I don't think it was a matter of one got lost somewhere during history. I don't think there ever was one. We don't know what he looked like in physical form, but there is one full-color portrait of Jesus in this world today. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you live in Christ, then Christ lives in you. Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then we look in John chapter 14 and verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. If you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins. If you have surrendered to him in baptism, confessing his name as the son of God and your Lord and Savior if you have been buried with him in the waters of baptism, then God has washed away all of your sins. And as you come up out of that water, you take on the image of Christ for humanity to observe. As you begin to live by the character which he taught us to portray as his true followers. Obedience, righteousness, humility, faithfulness, on and on as we've looked this morning. All of these points of character paint a portrait of Jesus. But you, if you are living in Christ, you are the only full color portrait of Jesus that exists in this world today. When you're baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 27 now think about that the idea there the image as if wrapping a garment around your body but we're talking of course from a spiritual perspective but you're you are to glorify Christ Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 that you are to be seasoning salt upon this world that really needs seasoning to be to make it better you are to be a shining light of Christianity, of godliness, of Christ in you. You are to live that image to the world that they can see the better way that contrasts from the horrible way of worldliness and wickedness and evil and, and sinfulness. As a true Christian, you are an, a, a living epistle of Christ. Paul wrote in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then again, what does Paul write in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 2 and 3? You are our epistle, our letter Written on our hearts, known and read by all men. As people look at you as a true, faithful, dedicated Christian, they see Christ in you. You are the full color portrait of Jesus in your character. How you live. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, of the heart, of the heart. Now, when people look at you, they see Jesus in you. If you are living in Jesus, you are the only full-color portrait of Jesus that exists in this world because you were baptized into him and he is in you. Now, when people look at you, what do they see? If you have not yet surrendered to your Lord in baptism for the remission of your sins, they don't see Jesus in you. You're not in him. But you can correct that this morning. Or you can begin to study with us and let us help you see how that can be corrected. And we'd love to be able to do that with you. If you're ready to be baptized, what a change that's going to make in your life. What a change that's going to make in the world around you. Think about that. The only true, full-color portrait of Jesus. People will be able to see in the life that you live for him and in him. If you need to come for whatever reason, we encourage you to step forward as we stand and sing.